This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service, and a perfect gift for Mother's Day. Have a mom or motherly figure in your life who loves books? Give them the gift of tailored book recommendations for Mother's Day, which is coming soon. When you do, your mom can tell TBR about their reading likes and dislikes, what they're looking for, and sit back while their bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for them. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email. Gifts start at only $16, so there's an option for every budget. TBR subscribers are matched to bibliologists based on their requests, so if your mom loves thrillers, wants to read more romance, is looking for poetry by writers of color, or maybe a space opera, we've got someone who knows just what to recommend. So you don't have to guess. Our bibliologist can also check your mom's Goodreads accounts if she has one, saving you from gifting a book that she's already read. Plus, gifts can be scheduled so you won't miss Mother's Day. Go to mytbr.co to give your mom the gift of tailored book recommendations. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton, recording this week's episode on Thursday, April 22nd. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, feeling pretty out of it this week, as we were, <laughs> we were just discussing. Um, I think that yeah. that's a normal state of affairs, though, for the globe. So I don't feel alone in that. Yes, yes. There was this, I think it was a New York Times article going around over the last week about how the feeling we all have now is that we're languishing, which is not a feeling that I would have been able to name or identify. But then once I read it, I was like, oh, yes, that that is it. It's just kind of like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> that, that feels like That's it, it. kind of sums it all up. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make sure and real quick do some follow up. About yes. so I believe last episode I mentioned that my cats had their first birthday <laughs> and because it is quarantine we celebrated it. I mean maybe we would have anyway. Who knows? We'll never know that life. Won't know that alternate timeline. Yeah, exactly. There's like an alternate timeline somewhere where I will know if we had a cat birthday party. We probably did, but we don't know for sure. Anyway, so a listener sent us uh, to our uh, Book Riot email a photo of their own cat birthday party that they threw <laughs> for their extremely cute cat. And I was delighted. I was too. Please, if you have cat birthday photos, email them to us at forreal at bookriot.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So um, one of my coworkers, she does our internal newsletter for our department. And uh, the last one, she asked people to send in uh, pictures of their pets. And it is the most submissions that she has gotten for the internal newsletter from staff uh, ever. Uh, so please, I would love to see pictures of cat birthday parties. That would be truly delightful. My uh, my piece of follow-up from last episode is that I finally, finally finished the audiobook of A Promised Land by Barack Obama. Uh, it is like 20 hours long, and it took me a long time to get through it, but I finally did. Uh, and I think last time when we talked about it, I was not sure like how it was going to end because it was not very far into his presidency, and that was getting close to the end of the book. Uh, so I wanted to just say it does end with the killing of Osama bin Laden in May 2011, which then made me curious about, like, 
how is the next memoir going to go if that's only as far as he got in 20 hours of audiobooking? <laughs> um, I'm really proud of you for finishing that book. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was a genuine accomplishment for me personally, having a track record of never finishing giant biographies. I was very impressed with myself. I didn't even finish Hamilton, and I'm obsessed with Hamilton, and I did not finish that one. So that book needed to be seriously edited, and it wasn't. So that's fine. Yeah, I got to 500 pages of uh, Ron Chernow's Hamilton, and I was like, why am I not done with this book yet? And then I just stopped reading it. I think that I might have mentioned this last time we talked about it, but he does some like weird like blaming of Mariah Reynolds and mm -hmm. yeah, and which obviously is kind of carried into the musical and mm -hmm. it's almost absolving Hamilton and I don't love that. But it is still, mm. I mean, it's impressive that he put so much research into uh, Hamilton and of course I'm very glad that the musical exists, but I don't think it's a huge loss that you didn't finish re reading that biography. Oh, let's talk about our first sponsor for the episode. It is Harper Perennial, publisher of Sure, I'll Be Your Black Friend by Ben Philippe. In the biting, hilarious vein of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker and We Are Never Meeting in Real Life comes Ben Philippe's candid memoir in essays chronicling a lifetime of being the black friend. See also boyfriend, coworker, student, roommate, enemy in predominantly white spaces. Ben takes his role as your new black friend seriously, providing original and borrowed wisdom on stereotypes, slurs, and the whole swimming thing, how much Beyonce is too much Beyonce, the rise of the Karens, affirmative action, the Black Lives Matter movement, and other conversations you might want to have with your new BBFF. Uh, Sam Irby gave this a blurb when she said, I still mute Ben's texts. <laughs> <laughs> but I inhaled his hilarious book, which is so full of razor-sharp wit and punches to the gut that it almost made me sick. In a good way. <laughs> so if you're interested, which this sounds amazing, uh, it is Sure, I'll Be Your Black Friend by Ben Philippe. Uh, that is an amazing Samantha Irby blurb, which like I shouldn't be surprised that she would write a great blurb, but I still am like very delighted by that. Almost made me sick in a good way. Uh, I'm going to start saying that about all sorts of things. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, <laughs> awesome. So uh, this week for uh, nonfiction in the news, there's been a lot of news about dumb people getting book uh, deals, which I don't want to talk about, so we're not going to. The one piece of good book news is actually something that I couldn't find an article about. Like, we just kind of, this popped up on the Book Riot Slack channels, and everyone there is real jazzed about it. Um, and it is that Mary Roach has a book coming out in September 2021, allegedly, called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, which, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. And so... <laughs> There's no, like, news article, but there's uh, we'll have a link to the Amazon product listing. And I'm just going to read the summary because it's, it's really great. So what's to be done about a jaywalking moose, a grizzly bear caught breaking and entering, a murderous tree? As New York Times bestselling author Mary Roach discovers, the answers are best found not in jurisprudence but in science, the curious science of human-wildlife conflict, a discipline at the crossroads of human behavior and wildlife biology. She tags along with Animal Attack Forensics Investigators, which that sounds amazing. Human Elephant Conflict Specialist, also amazing. 
bear managers, and danger tree faller blasters. She travels from leopard terrorized hamlets in the Indian Himalaya to St. Peter's Square in the early hours before the poet arrives for Easter Mass when vandal gulls swoop in to destroy the elaborate floral display. Along the way, Roach reveals as much about humanity as about nature's lawbreakers, combining little-known forensic science and conservation genetics with a motley cast of laser scarecrows, langur impersonators, and mugging maracs. Uh, Fuzz offers hope for compassionate coexistence in our ever-expanding human habitat. So that sounds great, and I'm super jazzed. Uh, out September 14th, although there's no cover or anything yet, so I'm, I don't know. Hopefully it is. Uh, so cautiously optimistic about these September yes. release. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Wait, I wonder when her last book came out. That is a good question. Let's see what Amazon can tell us. Yeah, I think at this point, oh, have I only read one? I've only read one Mary Roach, actually, but I really liked it. It was stiff about dead people. That was- uh, that's my favorite. My, so the last book she wrote came out in 2017. It was Grunt, The Curious Signs of Humans at War, which actually I got to interview her after that book came out for Book Riot. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I was just like so tongue tied the whole time. It was embarrassing, but it was great. But yeah, Stiff is my favorite. I also really liked Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void, which is all about like science around space travel. So yeah, there hopefully will be a, a Mary Roach this fall. We shall, we shall find out. That's very exciting. Yes. All right. So with that, we will shift gears into nonfiction that's actually out right now or will be out soon with uh, new nonfiction. So um, I will be up first. And my first pick is The Third Pole, Mystery, Obsession, and Death on Mount Everest by Mark Sinnott, which comes out April 13th from Dutton. Uh, and I picked this one because primarily it has like three of my favorite words to ever be in a nonfiction subtitle, which are obsession, death, and mystery. Um, I, I always I keep reading it as murder or mystery, obsession, and murder on Mount Everest, but that, there's no murder as far as we can tell, other than like the mountain killing people. But murder mountain, murder mountain. Yes. Uh, so the premise of the book is that. Senate gets uh, drawn to an expedition climbing Mount Everest in 2019, trying to solve a 100-year-old mystery. Uh, and so the mystery that they're trying to um, figure out is the disappearance of George Mallory and Sandy Irvine on Mount Everest. So in June of 1924, uh, George Mallory and Sandy Irvine set out to climb to the top of Everest. They were trying to be the first uh, people to actually get to the top of the summit. And they kind of headed up out on kind of a, a not great weather day and then disappeared. And they were not found. And it's assumed that they died on the mountain. And so... The people believe that Irvine had this Kodak camera with him so that he could record Mallory up at the top of the mountain to prove that they were potentially the first people who got there. But because they never came back, nobody really knows. And so there's this mystery about whether if they can find their bodies and find the camera, they might be able to get the film and preserve it and uh, they might be able to expose it. And if they find a picture of Mallory on the top of the mountain, then it would prove that actually they made it to the top of Everest first before uh, Sir Edmund Hillary does and um, Tenzing, Tenzing Norgay do later. So uh, in 1999, a group of explorers found George Mallory's body, but Irvine's has not been found or had not been found until. So the, the premise of the book is that Sinnott and his ex crew are going to, or in the group he goes with, are going to try and go up the mountain with some new information that they found. They're also bringing a filmmaker who has a drone who they think will be able to kind of go to places that people can't normally get to and maybe find his body. And if they find his body, they might find the camera and then solve the mystery of whether they made it to the top of Everest first. 
So that's kind of the historical mystery of the book. But other parts of it that I really liked are it's about what it takes to prep an expedition to Everest, um, all of the kind of research that Mark or the author does in archives and museums, and also about the commercialization of Mount Everest, which is kind of similar territory to what Into Thin Air by John Krakauer does, but he kind of explores it in some different ways and pulls that into the story. Um, And then also 2019 happened to be a really deadly season on Everest, and so there's quite a bit of a kind of bleak and graphic stuff about that when they're actually climbing a mountain and what they discover there of all the people who (laughs) died trying to climb it because they either weren't prepared or the mountain just got the best of them. So uh, kind of intense, but lots of interesting stuff too about like mountain climbing because I just think a lot of people who are mountain climbers are really kind of nuts because my goodness, that just doesn't seem at all fun to me, but (laughs) it is fun to read about. So (laughs) the third poll, Mystery, Obsession, and Death on Mount Everest by Mark Sinnott. That just doesn't seem fun to me. No, totally. (laughs) Totally. It's a different mindset for sure. Did you see, kind of related, that they might have solved the mystery of the Dyatlov Pass? No. It's not like, so you know, people have been like, is it, was it aliens? This was a a group of uh, friends and Russian hikers uh, died in the northern Ural Mountains in 1959. And their bodies were found in a very like, it was just weird. Everyone was like, what happened Mm -hmm. here, right? And it's been like, this is 60 years ago. Basically, they think it was an avalanche. And they didn't before think it could be an avalanche. And that's why they were like, well, it wasn't. And then they've done other studies. (laughs) And they were like, well, this would account for most of the things that happened. Which is why we want mysteries to remain mysteries. (laughs) Because then then you just, it's just, I don't know, this is kind of boring then. (laughs) Then it's not aliens and we don't get an X-Files story. I mean, unless it really was and they just also have this. Made it look like an avalanche. Yeah, that that could be a thing. Anyway, so my first new release for this week is The Unfit Heiress, The Tragic Life and Scandalous Sterilization of Anne Cooper Hewitt by Audrey Claire Farley, uh, out April 20th from Grand Central Publishing. This book is really interesting and covers some things that I didn't really know about, particularly around the turn of the century to the 1930s. So it has like the grander perspective of um, how womanhood in America in the 20th century was changing. So again, starting around like 1905, 1910-ish with Anne Cooper Hewitt's mother and her like, uh, she had a kind of scandalous life. She married multiple men, she kept divorcing them, and then uh, was just trying to basically get a lot of wealth accumulated that way, which at the time was a valid way of being a woman because you didn't have a lot of options. But she had this daughter, Anne Cooper Hewitt. She was not seemingly the best of mothers. And then the book starts with the story that Anne Cooper Hewitt goes to the press and is like, hi, um, my mother had me sterilized without my consent. They said that they were doing this. I think it was... I forget if it was an appendectomy or what, but she woke up in the hospital and they were like, oh, we like removed your fallopian tubes. It it was just like nuts. And she ends up like it's this whole thing and like a court case and, you know, they're like prosecuting her mom. And then it also gets into eugenics because that's how a lot of sterilization had started was through the, the history of and like fake science of eugenics. And so it just covers a lot of territory (laughs) with like this central story. This is like a horrific story in the middle of it and sort of being the through line of what was going on. I was similarly horrified to learn that a lot of the ideas behind eugenics came from America 
And then uh, people in Germany were like, oh, hey. And I was just, when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh. Like, it's just, it's just a lot. So mm-hmm. if you are interested, which I, it, it's a very interesting story. And the author, Audrey Claire Farley, is writing, when I was looking her up, because I was like, you know, what are her credentials? Da, da, da. She is writing another book right now about a murder that happened in England Similarly, in like the early 20th century, and it was like a huge newspaper case. It was like a minister was murdered and this woman he was having an affair with. And basically, she's seems skilled at finding stories that were huge at the time, like really big in the newspaper, Mm -hmm. but no one really knows about them now. So again, it is The Unfit Heiress, The Tragic Life and Scandalous Sterilization of Anne Cooper Hewitt by Audrey Claire Farley. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, and like you said, like a good kind of big story at the time, but that we've sort of lost track of and how it connects to some bigger issues and questions. And yeah, fascinating. I just, I feel like I read more than the average person about <laughs> like a hundred plus years ago, and mm-hmm. I'd never heard of this. I, I just find it really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, great pick. So my second pick is called Crying in H Mart, a memoir by Michelle Zauner, uh, which comes out April 20th from Knopf. And uh, Michelle Zauner is uh, known in the indie rock scene. She isn't, it's not a band, it's a solo act called Japanese Breakfast. And um, that's kind of what she's probably most famous for. Um, This is a memoir about growing up Korean-American, losing her mother to cancer, and then kind of refinding her Korean identity after she loses that connection with her mom. So her parents uh, met while her dad was working in Seoul. Uh, They moved to Oregon when Zauner was one. And so she grew up as one of the few Asian-American kids in her Eugene, Oregon school. And she, throughout her childhood and her adolescence, really struggled with her mother's very high perfectionist expectations of her. Um, In one of the early chapters, she just writes about, like, how much her mother just came down on her all the time for not being good enough in all these different ways. Um, That is really, it's very hard to read. But also, like, she has a very, I think, clear sense of, like, that was her mother's way of showing that she loved her. And so kind of understanding kind of where that comes from, too. She writes about how she got kind of approval from her mom and her family while through through like being adventurous with food. And so food is a really important part of this book. And she writes really beautifully about food and meals that she has had over time. So yeah, so after growing up in Oregon, she moves to the East Coast for college. She works in restaurants. She plays in a band. She meets her future husband. And all of those kind of experiences pull her away from her Korean heritage. And so um, she kind of starts to shift away from that. And then when she, her, she turns 25, her mother is diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so Zana returns home to care for her and to cook for her, particularly during her cancer treatment. And so returning home for that kind of forces her to get back to her Korean identity around food and language and history because her mom is really her like close tie to that. And so it's about being there for her mom during her cancer treatment and her death and about grief afterwards. And, you know, about the idea of losing this chance for an adult relationship with her mom after kind of moving away for college and stuff and then not getting to have that later after having a really complicated childhood and adolescence with her mom. So it's just it's so beautifully written. Um, The very first chapter is based on an essay that she wrote in The New Yorker, I think. Um, about going to H Mart, which is a Korean grocery store where you also can like get food and there's all sorts of like restaurant kind of style stuff there. And she writes about going with her mom and then going there after her mom has died and seeing all of the other kind of families there and what that makes her think about. And it's just, 
just really, really vivid and beautifully written. She has a lovely, like, way of writing about food, which is not all, like, that's a hard thing to do, I think, sometimes, but she really is very evocative in that writing. And I just, it's, it's, it's sad, obviously, but it's also very beautifully written and uh, very vivid in the descriptions that she has of her experiences and stuff. So I, I really like this one. I think a lot of people are going to. Uh, so that is Crying in H Mart, a memoir by Michelle Zauner. Dang. <laughs> just like, it just seems like it covers a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, side note. Uh, I just got an email today that Southwest has started flying to Eugene, Oregon. So. What? If that, yeah. You just, <laughs> when you mentioned it, I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, two things in the same day. Obviously, slightly different. Oh, I'm also, I'm reading Memorial, the novel, and they talk about H Mart, but because part of it involves like a Japanese mother comes over and stays with the main character. Do you know this novel? Uh, it's. Is that the Brian Washington one? Yeah. I have not read it, but I re- I've heard of it. I'm reading it for book club. It's sad, Ooh. so it's not my normal thing, but it's very good. So I'm doing it. Anyway, no, that sounds really good. I have a similar sort of like intense memoir as the next one, mm-hmm. I would say. So this is We Are Bridges, a memoir by Cassandra Lane. And basically, Cassandra Lane finds herself pregnant at 35. So she was she had been trying to avoid having a a child because of like her kind of complicated history of her family and so she decides to go on this sort of uh, thought journey process uh in order to prepare to like have a child and so she it goes between uh 20th century rural south and then the 21st century in los angeles and she kind of pictures her great-grandparents who were Mary Magdalene McGee, which is such a good name, and Bert Bridges. But the tragic part being Bert's lynching at the hands of vengeful white men in his southern town. So, you know, you have this in like your great-grandparents, you're having a child and thinking like, well, how am I going to, what is my origin story? How, like, what legacy will I pass on to my child? And so it's this kind of thinking back over that and again the juxtaposition of the two time periods. So with the present, she is talking about things like the trauma of seeing a hangman game in a toy store, which like gosh, you know like I didn't even like we grew up like playing mm-hmm. that, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's just ugh. and then how like how she changed her mind about not wanting to have children 20 years after she had an abortion and then just going back and forth between these two times, which I think is a really interesting way to do a memoir and not – it sort of departs from, like, the norm, right? We've seen a lot of memoirs, uh, especially recently. I'm I'm not sure why, except maybe the – in some ways, the easiest thing to write about might be yourself because <laughs> it's like you don't have to do as much research, et cetera, <laughs> um, in the field of nonfiction. But – so whenever people are, like, presenting it in a new way, I get I get interested. So, again, just a lot about looking to one's past, but also preparing for the future and, you know, what having a child means and all of this. And that is We Are Bridges, a memoir by Cassandra Lane. That sounds really good. And I, I looked it up and the cover is really cool. Yeah. Too. It's got, it's really vivid and like you can kind of see the way that the story is trying to play with those different timelines and stuff to pull it together. So, yeah, really interesting pick. Sounds like a good one. 
So my last pick for new books is one that I actually haven't gotten to read yet, but it looks great and it was on my list and I just ran out of time for this week, but I wanted to talk about it anyway. So the new book is called I Am a Girl from Africa by Elizabeth Niamayaro, which comes out April 20th from Scribner. So uh, Elizabeth grew up in Zimbabwe and the book starts with uh, when she's eight years old, there's this severe drought that hits her village that almost kills her and her family. They spend just days without food and water. And she is saved by this young United Nations aid worker in a blue outfit who comes and gives her food. And that experience inspired her to kind of move forward in her life as a humanitarian and start to try and give back to her community. So she kind of is inspired from that moment. And she goes from Zimbabwe, she moves to London in her 20s, and then to New York and beyond. And eventually, it becomes a senior advisor at the United Nations. And she, in 2014, find, founded an organization called He for She, which is one of the world's largest global solidarity movements for gender equality. And so the book is about kind of the big moments and small moments of her life that can kind of change how you see the world or change your path in some ways. And also, um, I read an interview with her between her and Anne Hathaway. They're, they're friends. Um, and so they had an interview in Marie Claire where the author talks about this being a love letter to Africa and her childhood there kind of stories about being raised by her grandmother, living in community, and some of the other like good and positive stories about Africa kind of pushing against some, a lot of the narratives we have about it being sort of poor and destitute and those kinds of things and dire. So um, it's also in addition to being kind of this memoir and story of her childhood and growing up and finding her way as a humanitarian and an activist about kind of her love of Africa and, and living there. So like I said, I haven't really gotten to start this one, but it just sounds really beautiful and really interesting. So I wanted to make sure to talk about it. So it is I Am a Girl from Africa by Elizabeth Niamayaro. Oh, I talked about that in True Story, the nonfiction newsletter, but I didn't get, mm. I mean, similarly, I didn't get a review copy of it. So I don't know, it's good. To, I didn't know about that interview. Yeah, I'll, I'll find it and link to it in the show notes. It was, it was really interesting. That's awesome. So. My last new book, yes, is The Age of Acrimony, How Americans Fought to Fix Their Democracy, 1865 to 1915 by Joe Grinspan. Uh, this is from Bloomsbury. When I saw that date range, I was like, oh my gosh, it's my timeline. This is exactly kind of what I'm interested in, although it goes a little earlier too, but like definitely that in American history. Joe Grinspan is the curator of political history at Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, so he is the person to write this book. <laughs> and he basically says that the way that we know politics now, you know, people are saying, like, we're more divided than ever, and it seems like the Civil War and, like, all this stuff, which, I mean, I've, I've definitely thought that, at least. And he says, if we look at the late 19th century in America, it is wildly different than how things are now. And it's much better now. He was basically like the way that we came to know politics in the 20th century was an outlier compared to the rest of American history. And true, American history does not go back that far. But I still found it comforting <laughs> to have him be like, no, 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 it was way worse. So this is also including like, we had three presidential assassinations. Like if you're reading about especially the late 19th century, who were they? Wait, McKinley? <laughs> Garfield? And are we counting Lincoln? Maybe we're counting Lincoln, I thought. He's 1865. Anyway, so there was that. There was, like, lynching was essentially an epidemic. Like, this is why Ida B. Wells went on her anti-lynching crusade. It was, it was happening mm -hmm. 
so much that it was just like we uh, like the, why is this not being addressed and then she extraordinarily bravely did this but just like all of these things going on and we also had progressivism and then the women's suffrage movement was gaining steam but it was kind of joining forces with anti-immigrant groups and then you had tammany hall and the political machine that basically like owned new york just a lot of corruption and a lot of awfulness so if you want to feel better about now <laughs> uh, and you kind of like 19th century history. Uh, it is the age of acrimony, how Americans fought to fix their democracy by Joe Grinspan. That is a really great pick because, yeah, I think I, I think I feel the same way as you, right? Like things are really terrible now and like how, this is the worst time ever. But like, you know, perspective. History is good perspective yeah. for the things we face today. Yeah, that's a great pick. All right, so that'll wrap up new books for this week. Obviously, there are many more, but those are just a few we're excited about. Um, our second sponsor for this week's episode is Spark by Claudia Kelb from National Geographic. Uh, so Spark is a series of linked biographies in which best-selling author and acclaimed journalist Claudia Kelb follows the journeys of 13 remarkable individuals, from Shirley Temple to Alexander Fleming to Eleanor Roosevelt to Bill Gates, to discover the secrets behind their talents. Each person possessed a unique arc of inspiration. Each person, through science, art, music, theater, and politics, reached extraordinary success at different ages of life, and each offers us a chance to explore the genesis and experience of genius. So, for example, Yo-Yo Mazier for music emerged not long after he learned to walk. By the age of seven, he was performing for President Kennedy. By 15, he debuted at Carnegie Hall. Maya Angelou, by contrast, didn't write her iconic memoir, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, until she was 40. So this book really explores uh, what profiles some individuals to reach extraordinary creative heights in the earliest years of life, while others discover their passions decades later. So Spark is available April 27th, 2021, wherever books are sold. Did you ever watch the movie The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, starring Cary Grant, Shirley Temple, and Myrna Loy? I did not, no. So basically, Myrna Loy from the Thin Man movies is a judge, and she sentences Cary Grant to something. He's an artist. And then Shirley Temple is her sister, and she falls in love with Cary Grant. And then eventually, Cary Grant and Myrna Loy fall in love. It's great. Shirley Temple is like 16, which is weird. And I think it was one of her like last you know, things, because mm -hmm. she's known as this child star. Anyway, yeah, everyone should watch that movie. Also, amazing that in the 1940s, women could be judges in movies. Yes, that is. I know that that was only really tangentially related to what we were talking about, <laughs> but I recently watched that movie, and it was good. It was, ma it was many good facts, and I appreciate them. <laughs> All right, so uh, our theme for this week's episode, we are recording on April 22nd, which is, of course, Earth Day. So we decided we would explore some uh, nature nonfiction in various different ways. So we've got a few different books that you can read after Earth Day or really any time because it's always a good time to read about nature. So my first pick is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative by Florence Williams, uh, which came out in 2018. And this book is kind of a meandering and wide-ranging look at the science behind nature's positive effects on the brain. So she opens the book by with chapters on uh, sort of the two different approaches to how we can look at the effects of nature on our brains. So the first one is a bunch of scientists in Japan where researchers, that group is trying to look at, at quantifying how nature can lower our stress and boost our mental health through the idea that we feel at home in nature and we like kind of evolved in that space. So they're looking at nature related to stress and mental health. 
And then our next chapter is about a bunch of neuroscientists in the United States who are looking at nature in terms of how it can affect our attention and then improve our cognition. And so these are sort of two different, I think, schools of thought about the impact of nature, one sort of about our productivity and one more about our general like well-being. And so she kind of outlines what those two approaches are and the different questions those kind of groups are asking. And then the rest of the book explores various uh, research and scientists and studies and whatnot about what happens to our brains and our bodies during various lengths of time in nature. So there's a section on like nearby nature. So just those little short walks that you can go out inside or whatever. Um, There are some chapters on... There's a group in Finland who suggests that five hours in nature a month is the ideal. So there's some chapters about what does that kind of medium amount of time in nature look like for ourselves. And then there's some chapters on like really deep dives into nature and what it means to be out in nature for extended periods of time. Plus a look at like what it means now that we live mostly in cities and how we can bring nature into our everyday lives. And so I just, this one is a super easy read. She has this very nice conversational writing style good at like giving you the personalities of scientists and then kind of explaining what they do, weaving in anecdotes to make it kind of more interesting. She tells some of her own story about moving from Colorado to Washington, D.C. and what that was like to move from a place where nature was really accessible to one where nature's really not. Um, And I just think it's really, if you're a person who like does feel better when you get outside for a while, I think reading a book about why is a good reminder that it's important to do even when it's like you're tired and exhausted. Like I always know I feel better when I go for a walk, but sometimes you get really tired and you can't make yourself do it. And so it's nice to read a book in science where it's like, no, science is telling me I should do this. And so if you sometimes need a little bit of science to help you remember why nature is important, I think this one would be good to pick up. So That is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative by Florence Williams. Oh, that's so nice. I really (laughs) like that. I just – I moved really recently to a place that has more access to nature than before. Like before it was just kind of like Mm -hmm. Chicago's lake, which is very nice and like huge. So that's like, you know, cool and awe-inspiring. But being able to be more around like trees and like wildlife in general, like it's so Mm -hmm. nice. It makes me laugh that uh, you called a great lake Chicago's lake. It is. <laughs> As if there are no other cities that are, like, on that lake. <laughs> Look, if you were looking at the lake, in Ch- it looks like – I mean, first of all, it looks like a kind of the ocean, right? There's You can't see the mm-hmm. other side. No, that's all I have to say. I guess it borders, like, Michigan. What's like calling Lake Superior Duluth Lake? Does it border Michigan? <laughs> Um, it's Chicago's Lake. It's Lake Michigan. Okay. Anyway, so my pick <laughs> is The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate, Discoveries from a Secret World by Peter Wohlleben. So this was originally published in German. The translation was by Jane Billinghurst, but this was like an immediate New York Times bestseller. So if if you're at all like put off by translated works, the translation is excellent. So It has a bunch of like little chapters and they have really fun titles like Woody Climate Control and Mighty (laughs) Oak or Mighty Wimp. (laughs) I'm like, what is that in German? Um, And then Motherships of Biodiversity. I mean, there's like over 30. There's a bunch. But they're just, it's broken up into this thing. He definitely, Peter Volleben anthropomorphizes trees for sure. But maybe that's a thing. I had one line uh, in the book that I marked that because he was talking about trees feeling pain. And I was like, 
Christo was right, which if you grew up perhaps in the early 90s, you will know as a reference to Ferngully, the last rainforest, <laughs> which <laughs> Krista, the wood sprite or whatever, is upset because Zack, the miniaturized human, has carved into a tree. The tree <sighs> feels pain. Anyway, that's a great movie. So it's, yeah, it's, it basically talks about how trees are actually very interconnected and react to things in ways that we would not think. One of the most fascinating things that I thought that I read was that if a giraffe starts eating an African acacia, the tree will release a chemical into the air that signals that there's like a threat. And when the other trees get this chemical, like they receive it from the air, they start producing toxic chemicals so that it's going to be less attractive to the to the giraffe. And there's another one where uh, there's this leaf-eating insect, and they can tell when, uh, like, from the saliva that, that it's, like, the leaf is being eaten. And so the tree will send out a chemical signal that attracts predators that feed on that insect, which I was just, like, my mind was blown. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was like, no idea. Um, also talking about how trees will, like, I mean, kind of similarly, right? They'll share information. They have families. Uh, he talks about the importance of, like, a forest you know, as a whole, as opposed to just having, I was looking at my street and we have a bunch of individual trees, but like nowhere near, you know, forest size. And just how when you have an entire forest, how it will take care of itself. And it's just, it just makes you, I mean, as you might guess from a book entirely about trees, it just makes you appreciate trees so much. And just like, it may, it's kind of like with what Kim was talking about with the nature fix. It makes you just want to like get out and like look at trees and be like, you're awesome. <laughs> Not that the tree cares. But, you know, it's nice to just think. So anyway, I love trees. So I'm delighted by this book. And given by like, again, how much it's sold, I'm assuming a lot of people love trees. So that is The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate, by Peter Volleben. That sounds awesome. That is a, a great pick. So uh, my second pick is called As Long as Grass Grows by Dina Hilio Whitaker, uh, which is a book about indigenous environmental justice. So this is one that was not really on my radar, but I thought when we were talking about nature books, I was like, oh, this will be a really good excuse for me to finally read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer which like has been on my list forever and I just have never like gone around picking it up. But when I went to go get it at the library, the hold list is super long. So then I thought everyone knows about the book. You don't need to talk about braiding sweetgrass. So I started looking for other kind of similar titles or like that were on similar book lists. And I found this one and I don't know that it's really the same as braiding sweetgrass, but like that's how I came to it. So um, this book is quote, the story of native people's resistance to environmental injustice and land incursions and a call for environmentalists to learn from the indigenous community's rich history of activism. And so she's looking at the connections between indigenous people and environmental justice and how over like the United States fraught history with native peoples around treaty violations, struggles for food and water security and protection of sacred sites, uh, native activists have highlighted their leadership and particularly the leadership of indigenous women in protecting the land in the United States. 
And so she opens with a chapter about the struggle at Standing Rock and then uses that story to kind of lead into other stories and research and interviews and information showing the role of protest and protection that Indigenous people take on related to the land. Um, And so she was a reporter at writing about Standing Rock, and so she brings some really firsthand uh, views and knowledge and experience from that place. And it's really vivid and interesting uh, when put in that the context of history around environmental struggles that Indigenous people have led. And so there's other stuff in the book about settler colonialism and how that is connected to environmental injustice, and that when the environmental community doesn't include Indigenous people in its work, that is also a type of colonialism. And so the importance of having Indigenous people as part of the environmental movement is also a lot about that's in this book. And so she looks at how Indigenous groups, various different Indigenous groups, approach environmental justice and how partners between Native and non-Native people are changing the environmental movement. And just lots of really interesting stuff about the connections between Indigenous people and environmental justice. And, like, that's not something that I really like, have spent a lot of time thinking about for whatever reason. And so um, I found this book really interesting in giving some kind of big-picture context to all of that. Um, And it's a bit on the academic side, maybe, compared to, like, The Nature Fix. Like, that is a very conversational book. This one is a bit more academic, but it's not it's not hard to read or anything like that. It um, is still very accessible, but it really gave this really interesting framing to the environmental movement that I hadn't really thought about, and particularly like the importance of having Indigenous voices in those conversations and in that activism. Um, and so I think from that perspective, it's just something new for me, and I thought it was really, really interesting. So that is As Long as Grass Grows by Dina Hillia Whitaker. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, I've had that on a couple lists in the past. I've only been able to skim it, though. So I'm really looking forward to just sort of, you know, sitting down. And similarly with Braiding Sweetgrass, which is Mm -hmm. always on the um, best-selling nonfiction section of my my indie bookstore, which I've heard nothing but, like, good things about. Mm -hmm. So my last one I found really recently, and I was – I'm really fascinated by it. So, okay, we're going to talk about it. It is Farming While Black, Soulfire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land by Leah Penniman. So part of the reason I'm fascinated by this is it's partially like a textbook for farming, right? It's a practical guide to liberation Hmm. on the land. So you'd think like, well, all right, I don't know. Like it has chapters like planning your farm business uh, and restoring degraded land and stuff. It has a 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon with almost 400 reviews, which I was like, that's very wow. impressive. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so Vogue called it an extraordinary book, part agricultural guide, part revolutionary manifesto, which makes me feel like I'm living in the 1930s in like a fun way. <laughs> uh, just to go back to Sam Murphy. So... Uh, It basically said, in 1920, 14% of all landowning U.S. farmers were black. And today, less than 2% of farms are controlled by black people. This is a loss of over 14 million acres. uh, And because of, you know, discrimination and dispossession and just systemic racism. So this is saying that while farm management is among the whitest of professions, farm labor is predominantly brown and exploited. And people of color disproportionately live in food apartheid neighborhoods and suffer from diet-related illnesses. So saying that 
the farming system needs a redesign. So this is a how-to guide for aspiring, uh, quote, African heritage growers to reclaim their dignity as agriculturalists and for all farmers to understand the technical and distinct contributions of African heritage people to sustainable agriculture, which I'm just like, this is such a, like, can you imagine like sitting down and being like, I am going to write this with that goal? Like that's, that's so Mm -hmm. like ambitious and amazing. (laughs) That I was just yeah. really impressed that this exists. And uh, I'm trying to look at like some of the – just to highlight. So uh, one of the chapters is also honoring the spirits of the land, which includes um, harvesting rituals and herbal baths is one. And then uh, crop planning, just like explaining that and tools and technology – but then also, like, near the end, so it goes through all of these, like, how-tos for, you know, the typical sort of, like, this is what you do on a farm. Um, it also talks about, near the end, it's got youth on land and, like, how you can include younger people in this, you know, like, relation to the land. And But then it also has healing from trauma and movement building. And then the last chapter is white people uprooting racism, which is, like, reparations, mm-hmm. forming interracial alliances, organizational transformation. Like, it covers a lot, and again, in, like, a really fascinating way. So if you're interested, which this just – it's just – I don't – I have no plans to work on a farm, and I want to, like, look into this even further because <laughs> it's just, again, like, so wide-ranging and and just really fascinating. And it does have so many, like – amazing reviews. It also won the James Beard Foundation Leadership Award in 2019. So it's like a really recent release. So again, that is Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land by Leah Penniman. That is such a great and interesting pick. And like you said, like exploring that disconnect between like farming as sort of a white profession, but farm labor being black and brown people and lack of access to fresh foods in a lot of like food desert areas that are in lower income communities and just like how like how all of those things connect together and what to do about it just sounds fascinating what a great pick alice thank you for thank you for bringing that one i was excited to find it i just like <laughs> i feel like a nerd yeah. about it but yeah 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 Yeah, that's fun. Uh, All right. So with that, uh, hopefully those are some interesting picks to grab this Earth Day. Uh, Other nature books, we'd love to hear some of your recommendations as well. So with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading right at this very moment. Um, I've been in kind of a weird like middle space of not really settling into any book. I don't know, like I'm just having a hard time. But the one that I think I'm going to pick up first this weekend for the readathon is called Northern Light, Power, Land, and the Memory of Water by Kazima Lee, which came out this year. Um, and I heard about from Jen, uh, who's fellow writer Jen Northington. And so this is a book by a um, an essayist who he's writing about his childhood, reflecting on a time he lived in this very small community of, called Genpeg, which was a site of an electric dam on a river and he lived there for a few years when he was a kid and then moved away and then as an adult like becomes curious about like what happened to that town and that place and so he tries to go back and tell the story over what happened there and what water meant to that community when it was dammed and then when it was not and it just sounds really fascinating um and he i think jen said he's also um I don't remember if he's a poet too, but she was really uh, praised it a lot. So I'm excited to pick it up myself. So Northern Light, Powerland, and the Memory of Water by Kazim Ali. We talked about that on the podcast a little bit ago. 
Did we? I I can't remember if we talked about it in new books or if it was just a quick mention, but I finally have a copy of it and I'm going to read it. It might have been a quick mention. I am still reading. uh, So kind of like you. Okay, I looked at my April stats and I've read three books and most of them have been comic volumes. So it's been slow going, but I've been reading bits of many books. And I'm just going to talk about the one that I talked about last time because I am further along, which is City of Light, City of Poison. The Murder, Magic, and First Police Chief of Paris by Holly Tucker. That, okay, so this is basically um, in a quick thing because I've already talked about it. 17th century, reign of Louis XIV. They're talking about a time when a lot of people were poisoned in Paris. And uh, it's very fascinating. I like, when I first started it, I was like, yeah, this is good. And now I just feel like I'm getting even more of this like complete picture. I don't know a lot about 17th century Paris. You know, you mostly hear about the revolution in the late 18th century and hearing about like Louis XIV building Versailles, but also his many relationships and who in his court was poisoning other people and how they were punished or how like, and how the whole affair was hushed up. And it's just... It's really interesting. So I'm really into it. And I'm psyched to pick up. I think you read, I think I know you mentioned it last time. But you read Holly Tucker's other book that I've already mm-hmm. forgotten the name of, but it also sounded really good. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name either, but yes. Yeah. It's easily findable. So again, that is City of Light, City of Poison by Holly Tucker. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you would go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, so with that, I am Kim Ukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.